Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I confess that uh, it is easy to take your word for granted. We have free apps, we have the internet, we have uh, an abundance of printed Bibles. Uh, we, we have an abundance of different English options for us to read. And there are people in the world who do not have this book in their language. There are people who have to read this book through a second language. And here we are so blessed to have this text before us in English, in our hands. And Lord, we pray that you would move it from our hands into our hearts, that we would experience your word, above all, that we would experience you, and more than ex experiencing you, that we would know you and be known by you, that we would grow in personal relationship with you, a relationship that is marked by loyalty and holiness. Lord, a relationship that grows in joy and grace. Be gracious to us now as we study your word. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The title of today's uh, sermon that I have prepared for you is Put a Ring on It. Put a ring on it. The phrase put a ring on it is, of course, a euphemism for a marriage proposal. It was popularized in our Western pop culture about a decade ago when American singer Beyonce dropped her song Single Ladies with the refrain, Put a ring on it. Oh, 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 put a ring on it, right? The song was a hit in our culture. It won three Grammy Awards in 2010. It was the song of the year. It, it had all sorts of accolades that came with this song. It topped the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart for four non-consecutive weeks. It was certified quadruple platinum. Around the world, millions of people were singing the refrain, put a ring on it, put a ring on it. And uh, bringing, bringing up those lyrics today, there might be some single ladies in the house that are like, yeah, amen, put a ring on it. It's, it's, it, it struck a chord in the culture, this, this song, Single Ladies, or Put a Ring on It. In fact, in 2020, the Oprah Winfrey Network came out with a TV series uh, by that title, Put a Ring on It. It's a reality show with three long-term unengaged couples that have been dating each other for some time, and they're placed in the reality show under the, I guess, quote-unquote, care of a relationship coach to challenge the couples to break up or put a ring on it. So they put couples in scenarios where they're introduced to other attractive people so as to test the fidelity of the relationship, put a ring on it, or move on. Well, in today's message, I want to teach on the biblical topic of baptism. We have a baptismal pool out here. If you've been wondering what is going on, what's they got a jacuzzi out here, what's going on? That is a baptismal pool. In scripture and in church tradition, the rite of baptism has great similarity with the cultural practice of putting a ring on it. Hence the title of today's message, Put a Ring on It. A marriage proposal in our culture is a, it's a public thing. If a guy uh, proposed to a gal and, and then followed it with, hey, don't tell anybody, right? It'd be kind of sketchy, like, no, nah, man, this is supposed to be a public thing. Culturally, a man asks a, a woman to marry him, and it's not supposed to be a secret. It's for the world to know. So it's public. Uh, further, it's a pledge. The proposal is a pledge to an exclusive relationship of loyalty and of love. The ring in Western tradition goes back to ancient times with ties to marital dowries, to promises of fidelity that are made between families in the bringing together of a man and a woman. A ring is expensive. 
or at least it should be, and the cost of it shows the sacrifice of the one who's doing the proposing. It shows the readiness to provide and to protect and to remain dedicated uh, both publicly and also privately. In other words, it's not just for appearances, it's not just a public show, but it's, it's also a private matter, a matter of fidelity and devotion, love and loyalty. Now, in similar manner, the act of baptism is like a ring in that it displays a relationship. You see the ring on the finger? That person is spoken for. Move on. They are spoken for. So, too, with regard to baptism, it is an act that says the person is spoken for. It is an act that says that person has received a relationship that was given to them in Christ Jesus the Savior by the washing of the Spirit in the redemptive sovereign plan of the Father. Salvation is a work of the triune God. The ritual of baptism is a symbol of that work, of that relationship that God has brought forth. Just like the ring is a symbol of one who is taken, one who is spoken for, so too baptism. It says this person is spoken for. This person belongs to another, namely to God, the God of creation. It is a special and sacred act. It, it reflects a special and sacred relationship. Now, before we get into the symbolism of baptism, I want to begin with where this baptism practice comes from. As we're having baptisms today, it's important that everyone understands what it is that we're doing. That is uh, a premium in our church. We want to make sure that people aren't just going through the motions. Why do we do these things? Why do we believe these things? What are the reasons for believing these things? We want folks to understand so without further ado, would you open up your Bibles and find your way into the Gospel of Matthew, to the closing chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. The first point that I have for you today, uh, for today's message, put a ring on it. The first point is commission. Commission. Where this act of baptism comes from, it comes from a specific commission that we find inside of the scriptures that we'll, we will be reading momentarily in Matthew chapter 28. A commission or commissioning takes place when one in authority authorizes another to a specific task. Let me say that again. A commission or commissioning takes place when one in authority authorizes another to a specific task. The, the other who is being authorized did not formally have the authority prior to the commission. But by way of extension through that act of commission, there is a giving of authority. An authority is passed to another to carry out a specific task. Last week was a very special Sunday. Oh, this Sunday is special with baptism. Last week was special as, as it was the, the, the weekend that we reflect on, that we commemorate the historic event of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, uh, what we culturally refer to as Easter. Last week was Easter Sunday. And Easter isn't an event that takes place in a vacuum any more than baptism is, a, is an act, a symbol, a ritual that takes place in a vacuum. It has a context to it. We saw in our study last week that the celebration of Easter goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the creation. It goes back to the God who created the world, who breathed life into the world, who, who, who made the universe and who made this planet upon which we stand now and who gave life to humanity and made humanity in his image. We, we studied the historical accounts of creation when we gathered and we, we read about the tragic, the tragic episode of humanity's rebellion against the creator. God breathed life into the creation. He made humanity to bear his image, to have a unique relationship with him. And humanity rejected God's love 
Humanity rejected God's rule. God had conditions for humanity, and humanity chose to go against that. You rebel against the one who has given you life, the consequence of that is the ushering in of death. You rebel against the giver of life, the consequence of that is the ushering of death. You rebel against the one who has designed the cosmos, who has given harmony to the cosmos, the consequence of that is disharmony. So we have disharmony and we have death in the creation. The one who has designed for relationships, the one who has designed the social order, you rebel against that one and you, you bring in dysfunction. So we have in creation today dysfunction. We have in creation today disharmony. We have in creation death. We have in creation disease. Rebel against the one who has given you life. Life is taken back and disease steps in. Death steps in. Disharmony steps in. Dysfunction steps in. And so you watch the news and you see this. All around us, there's, there's death. This past weekend, we lost two great ones. Uh, uh, the, the, the DMX, uh, for you hip-hop fans, and the Prince we lost. And you see people who seemingly like cultural icons who we think to be immortal, who we think can you know, sort of defeat death. They think of 2020 and the great blow to us in Los Angeles and losing Kobe Bryant. Someone who just seemed immortal so healthy, so young, so vibrant. But death comes to us all. 10 out of 10 people die. 10 out of 10 people will, will face disease of some sort in this life and dysfunction and disharmony. This is the reality of creation, a creation that rebelled against the creator. This is what we brought upon ourselves. And here comes the story of Easter, a story that goes back to the very beginning. When on the heels of humanity's rebellion against God, God said, I will send one who will rescue you from the disease, the death, the darkness, and the dysfunction. I will send one to you who you do not deserve, one who will accomplish the work for you. And you follow the storyline of the scriptures and you read that promise being passed. The promise being passed from our mother and our father, being passed to the great patriarch Abram, who becomes Abraham, who carries this this, this, this promise of a reversal of all of the dysfunction and disease and death and all of that that will come through this one who will arrive, who will take those things upon himself. And through him, he will bless the nations and renew creation as a gift from a loving God to a creation that rebelled against him. We get up to the account of Easter. We meet the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, who turns out to be more than a man. He is actually God in the flesh who has come to pardon sinners. As a man, he can stand in the place of humanity. He can take the bullet of death for us. As God, it is his prerogative to forgive. After all, when you are in a feud with someone, the offended party has the prerogative of forgiveness. You cannot, you cannot presume on someone and say, I'm sorry, you therefore must forgive me. The party that has been wronged has, has, has a right of refusal. That's the way that it works. And so in the story of Easter, in the history of Easter, in the science behind Easter, we have the God-man, the eternal son who has taken on human flesh, fully God and fully man in one person, sent of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And he comes to take our death and our disease and our dysfunction, our debt from rebelling against the Creator. He takes all of that and he pays for us. Imagine that you went to a restaurant. Remember those pre-COVID going to restaurants? Or, or maybe you've already started kind of going back, doing the outdoor dining, or found a local place that's a little more rebellious. 
But imagine being in a restaurant and you forget your wallet, you forget your credit cards, you don't have a means to pay. Well, you have to do something about that. If someone comes along after you've eaten your meal and you've realized that you don't have means to pay and offers to pay for you, the right response is to say, well, thank you. Because otherwise I would have been in trouble with the owner of this establishment because I have done something and incurred a debt that I could not pay because I did not have the means upon my person. And so too, no human has the means to pay their debt before God because we have all sinned and we've all rebelled against him. But behold, there is one who has come without rebellion, and he's not just a mere man, he is God. In other words, God didn't send a third party to clean up our mess. I love sending third parties to clean up messes. Hey, go take care of that for me. No, he got down and dirty and took it upon himself and provides, provides a payment for the debt of his people to show that that payment went through, to show that the check didn't bounce. For you younger people who don't know what checks are, to show that the Venmo, the Venmo or the Zelly went through, or whatever transaction, Bitcoin or whatever thing's going on right now, to show that that took place, the resurrection, what we celebrate in Easter, takes place. He rises up from the dead. The check didn't bounce. The payment went through. Check your phone. It's in your account. He paid for you. That is the gift. That is the relationship given to his people. He paid that for you. Jesus rises up from the dead and immediately he goes to his people. He gathers them to himself as a shepherd would his sheep that have wandered. And he gives them the first point on your outline. I said it's commission. And this is where baptism begins to take shape so that we have context this morning for what it is that we are doing. Baptism begins with Christ. Baptism begins with his commission to his disciples. This commission is so important that we find it in all four of the synoptic gospels. We read it in uh, all three of the synoptic gospels and John, all four of our canonical gospels. In the gospel of Matthew 28, where I ask you to, to turn, you can cross-reference it if you're taking notes in Mark chapter 16, Luke 24, and Luke chapter 20. All four of the canonical gospels record this event. It's an important event. When Jesus commissions, again, what is commissioning? It's one who's in a position of authority who transfers that authority to another for a specific task. When Jesus gives his authority to his people and says, I have something for you to do. And baptism is, is a part of that thing that we call the commission. It's often referred to as the great commission. It is, it is, it is referred to in those four gospel accounts and also in the book of Acts, which forms a second volume to the gospel of Luke. So you can read about it multiple times in the book of Acts in the very beginning in the first chapter. The disciples come to Jesus as he's about to ascend into heaven after the resurrection, after paying their debt for their sin. And they begin asking him about the promise that was made to Abram, about the promise who, uh, of the one who would come and reverse disease and death and dysfunction and all of this. When is the fulfillment of all of that going to take place? Is, is the kingdom of God that was promised to the patriarch, Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the great King David, that there would be a descendant who would come and sit on the throne of David and, and reverse the fall of creation? Is that going to happen for the people of Israel? And Jesus says, not right now. I have something else for you to do. In the meantime, in the in-between time, I have a commission for you. And this is where we pick up Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. 
The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, verse 17, and some were doubtful. Really quick, what's going on? On the one hand, they're worshipping. On the other hand, they're doubtful. What, what, what is going on here? Well, they're not doubtful with regard to who Jesus is. They're not doubtful that he is God in the flesh who died a, a, a penalty that they deserved on the cross. They're not doubtful of this message that we call the gospel. They're doubtful of what exactly is going on. Is disease going to be reversed? Is death going to be reversed? Are the dead going to rise up? Is this messed up creation going to come back in harmony with the Creator? When is all of that going to happen? Why are you bringing us up to this mountain? What is all of this about? They're doubtful. They don't understand fully what's about to happen, and what's about to happen is a commission. They're worshiping Him. They're wondering what's going on. That's the doubt. And then, boom, Jesus drops a commission upon them. Jesus came. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 18. And he spoke to them and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism. Here we see this context. Here we see Jesus, that historical figure, who is more than a man of history. He's God of eternity in the flesh. A part of the storyline of creation and fall and the patriarch Abram and the people of Israel and the reversal of all these things. And here he comes to his disciples and he gives them a commission. It involves authority. As I said, that's what a commission is. And he talks about his authority. He says, I have authority over all of the cosmos, over the universe, over all of creation, the heavens and the earth. This is a divine claim. He is more than a mere mortal. He is more than a man of history. He has authority over the heavens and over the earth. Later on in the New Testament, we read in the book of Revelation, Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy to open the title deed of the earth in the book of Revelation. He is the ruler and the owner of all things, of the earth and of the heavens, over all of the creation. And on that basis, he gives this commission. Think about his authority for just a moment, brother and sister. Think about what that means for you as you stand in, in, in pursuit of following after him and you stand in the trajectory of this commission as a part of his body. Jesus intends for his church to be triumphant in the task that he gives to his church. What is the task? Verse 27, to make disciples. And oftentimes I find, you know, believers can be discouraged, particularly in our culture where people take church for granted, where people attack you for your faith, where people marginalize you for your religion because they're spiritual but not religious, whatever that means, and they attack you and they marginalize you and they make you feel little for your faith in Christ. But let me remind you that you stand on his authority, that you stand with the authority of the heavens and the earth that has been passed to you through him to make disciples, to continue on, to not be discouraged. Maybe you are a parent here today. You raised your kids in the church and some of them walked away and you feel discouraged in that. Let me remind you that the authority of the heavens and the earth is with Christ's people as we carry on this mission. Make disciples. He goes on to say, verse 20, draw your eyes at the text, teaching them to observe all of that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Now in the Greek text here, it has a very significant structure. Uh, forgive the quick English uh, uh, sort of gra grammatical breakdown, but it's significant. There are three participles in the text here. 
So if you're looking at the text with your eyes in verse 19 and verse 20, the Greek text has three participles. They are going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Each participle is dependent upon the main verb. And the main verb there is mathe tusate. Mathe tusate, one word in the Greek that we translate into the English in two words with make disciples. Mathe tusate. So the commission, the driving verb, mathe tusate, make disciples, right, then has these participles with it. Again, going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's talk about each of these so that we understand the text. First, let me talk about going. Well, we begin the text in verse 16, seeing that Jesus takes them to Galilee. He takes them to the mountain. So they are on top of a mountain. Mountains, of course, are significant inside of Scripture. We think of stories inside of the Bible, the significance of mountains and the storyline of redemption inside of the Bible. We think of Mount Ararat, where Noah was delivered. We think of Abraham and the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah. We think of Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Torah. We think of Elijah on Mount Carmel, where he exposed the false prophets. We think of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain, where Moses and Elijah, also men who had mountain moments, revealed true prophecy and fulfillment in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. These key events, scholars believe that this mountain here is very likely the Mountain of Transfiguration. So now we come full circle. And on this mountain, Jesus will tell them that he is the fulfillment He is the dawning of a new age that is taking place. The new age that will be realized when the Holy Spirit comes. He tells them to wait for the power of the Spirit to come. And it begins here on the mountain. It begins as they move from the mountain into Jerusalem. And they will move from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Geographic markers. You'll move from whatever. You'll move from uh, 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 Playa del Rey to Westchester to Inglewood to Hawthorne to Orange County, and beyond, you'll keep going, going, right? That's that participle, from the mountain into the cities, to the highways and the byways. For purposes of going and sharing the news of of Christ, he tells them to go specifically to all peoples. In the Greek text, he says, pata ta ethne. Now, you might hear, you might say, I I don't know Greek, pata ta ethne, ethne, is the word where we get our term ethnic. He tells them to go to all ethnic people groups. He is the Messiah of Israel, but he is the savior of all people groups, which is why our faith is all around the world in all types of people around the world, because our savior cares about all patata ethne, all people groups. I want you to go. So the going isn't just geographic, from Playa del Rey to Westchester to Inglewood to Orange County, It isn't just from the mountain to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the Roman Empire, but it's specifically a going that's focused on panta ta ethne, all peoples. Now, for purposes of going and sharing the good news of Christ, missiologists often define uh, the, the ta ethne as this way, the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Now, depending on how you group groups, the world has approximately uh, 10,000 ethnic groups to 24,000 ethnic groups. It just depends on how you slice and dice them. Think about the diversity of God's creation, that he made a world with such diversity. Uh, Again, depending on how you slice and dice, how you group groups, 
10,000 to 24,000 different ethnic groups on planet Earth. Now, in the last 2,000 years, the gospel went from these guys on that mountain to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. It went out, it went out, it penetrated Africa, it penetrated Asia, the Americas, Europe, and beyond. And, and they went out and they reached groups. According to Frontier Missions, it is estimated that 7.7 .7 billion people are alive in the world today. 3.23 billion of them actually live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 17,446 unique people groups in the world with 7,400 plus of them considered unreached. That, that's over 41% of the world's population. So the vast majority, 85% of the reached people groups that exist uh, in, in the world today, okay, where the, where the condensed population of them, where we find them, is in what's known geographically as the 1040 window. So the vast majority of the least reached groups uh, today, 85% of them, exist in the 1040 window. And missiologists tell us that about 10% of global Christian resources is going to reach that. So it's something that we want to be thinking about as, as a people, as, as a church, as we stand with this commission in front of us that Jesus has given to his people to carry out. It is a commission that hasn't been done. It is a commission that has his authority to be accomplished. So it is one that we seek to see happen. That 1040 window... The 1040 window, if you're not familiar with this term, it's a rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. In this window, there are 6,000 unreached people groups with a population of approximately 3 billion people. It is a huge mission field. Further, it is a dangerous mission field where outsiders, especially Christian ones, are not always welcomed into and those who brave it will be faced with persecution and even death for the gospel of Jesus. If you pay attention to international news, you know that what we have in North America is an amazing thing. We have the freedom of religion. I'm outside talking about Jesus. You know, God bless America. You can't do that in lots of places of the world. Last week, we actually sent one of our very own into the world. So it's timely that I'm talking about this. And I want to remind you, if you didn't get the prayer card last week, for our beloved Marlon and Jimena and their family. Last week was their last Sunday with us. With us. And, and this week we uh, headed to the airport and they, they sold their possessions and moved their lives into luggages. And I'm happy to report that we had correspondence with them and they have made it to their apartment in the Middle East where they are giving their lives to target unreached people groups who have yet to hear this message. I think about how things spread in the world uh, we talk about things going viral. And even before the Internet, we think of, uh, you know, Coca-Cola is a great example. Coca-Cola in a generation has reached more people than the gospel has in 2,000 years. Coca-Cola is everywhere on the planet. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. It's permeated everything. And so, too, this message about the God of creation and how he loves us and what he has done in response to humanity's rebellion against him and, and how he's provided a sacrifice for them in the historic Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive, who conquered death, who, who conquers disease, who conquers dysfunction, who's going to heal and renew all things, but is now patiently waiting for the day to do that because he's given this commission to his people and he has sent us to go. 
He has sent us to go, not just going to people who haven't heard about him, but going to the patata ethne, to people groups. He cares about people groups, cultures and, and peoples. He wants them to hear about him. And you might think, my goodness, do you want us all to go to the, you know, the Middle East or whatever? Sure, that'd be fantastic. If the Lord calls and provides, that would be great. But know that we're a part of that. This commission was given to his people. And so as we sent our beloved Marlon and Jimena out last week, as you give financially, as you partner, as you pray, as you cry, know that we as a community are part of actively trying to do this in the world. Further, for those of us who, who live here, if you are listening to me and you live here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles has 17 of, of the most unreached people groups living here in our city. Uh, we have the largest population of Tehrani uh, Persian Jews in North America, as well as substantial populations of unreached people groups, specifically Arab Muslims, Turkish Muslims, Moroccan Arab Muslims, uh, Gujarati Hindus. I could go on. We have, because it's LA, it's an international city, the nations are coming to us. So in a way, there's these three participles, I'm harping on the going one. We really don't have to go that far. They're here. You don't have to pack up a suitcase and go. They're here in the city. There are people here for us to reach. And they learn English and we can talk to them and we can bring the good news of the gospel to them. We are called to go. We are called, the two other participles, to teach and to baptize. Let me say something about teaching and we'll move on to baptizing because that's the whole point of putting a ring on it today. And we're going to see people get baptized. And as we watch them, I want everyone to understand because it's a premium to us to understand our faith and what we're doing. That's what teaching is about. It's one of the participles. We are a part of a historic faith, a faith that is a knowledge tradition, a faith that in our culture has been reduced largely to consumerism, to self-help, to motivational speaking, to TED Talks. Most uh, quote-unquote pastors that I see in particular in religious broadcasting are doing anything and everything besides actually teaching people. There's not a lot of education going on. It's just self-help. It's just one-liners and zingers and motivational talk and the rest. We are a part of a knowledge tradition that has been called to pass on information. We are a part of a confessional spirituality that involves taking actual data and teaching it and entrusting it to the next generation. This data concerns who God is, it concerns what God has done, and it, it, it concerns our response to God. Look at verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are passing on not just knowledge about who God is and what God has done, but practical knowledge about what it means to obey him and to follow him. So we pass on the commands of Christ, the mitzvah of the Messiah. We teach and we call on believers to walk in obedience to him. As well, we point the church to the one who has obeyed what we could not, Jesus the Christ. He obeyed what we could not. He offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. But we must understand what God requires, that we would be holy as he is holy, and that we fall short of that. So we need to understand orthodoxy, right belief about who God is, and we need to understand orthopraxy, right behavior, how we respond. Jesus taught his disciples, he said in John 14, 21, he who loves me obeys me. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's mitzvah oat. If you love me, you will obey. Verse 20, here in Matthew 28, we're supposed to be teaching people how to observe. That is how to obey. We live in a world where obedience is seen as a bad thing. We live in a culture that values autonomy. 
You think about the etymology of that word autonomy. Ata, uh, atas is the self. Namas is law. Where humans live their lives as though they are their own law unto themselves. We say things like, you know, I'm trying to find myself or I'm just keeping it real. I'm being true to myself. And we, we place a high value on you doing you and you following after you. Autonomy. Versus the calling of Christ is a, a Christonomy. It's a surrender to him and to his law and his way. And the world is going to say, oh, that's conformity. Oh, that's, you know, that's oppressive. Oh, that's, you know, your religion imposing your ideas on others. You shouldn't impose ideas on others. Now, that's just patently absurd when people say things like you shouldn't impose your ideas on others because they're actually contradicting themselves with that statement. That is to say, the person who says you shouldn't impose your ideas on others is actually imposing their idea that you shouldn't impose ideas on others. It's like saying, I, I can't speak a word of English. It's a contradiction in terms, like a married bachelor, a square circle, a jumbo shrimp, country music. Sorry, I had to do it, but, you know, like that doesn't make sense. That's, that's not, that doesn't make sense. You shouldn't impose your ideas on others. You're, you're imposing. You want me to conform to your norm, that, that it's somehow wrong to convey knowledge to people, right? You wouldn't do that in a math class when the teacher says two plus two is four. You wouldn't say, how dare you impose your numbers and equations on me? It's truth, though. It's not a matter of imposing. It's a matter of sharing truth. And when it, when it, when it boils down to truth, you want to know what is. There's a God who is. And mind you, there's a God that people want. And the two are not the same. And the most loving thing that you can do for someone when they get something wrong is, is to tell them. Not because you're in a position of, ha-ha, I'm above you because I know and you don't know. That, that's not the point of it. It's, hey, th I, th I want you to see this. I want you to get this. This is what truth is. Teach them the truth, Jesus says. Pass this on. Teach them the truth specifically of all that I have commanded you who I am, what I have done, what I call you to. This is a part of worship. We saw in the text that they were worshiping him. That's what worship is. It's, it's, it's a life that is reflected by, by, by the calling of Christ. How often do you hear people say, you know, oh, you know, you know, I grew up in the church or my mom was a Christian or my dad was and they got divorced and, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And then they walk away and use that as justification for rejecting the things of the Lord, which itself is also patently absurd. My math teacher was a hypocrite, but trigonometry still works. My biology teacher, you know, cheated on his wife, but you know what? Uh, he could balance those equations in our chem class, and he was right about things biological. Now, we, we don't want to be hypocrites, but being a hypocrite doesn't mean that the truth claim on the table is somehow uh, invalidated. And so that we won't be hypocrites, Jesus says, teach them to obey, teach them to observe. That's what a loving relationship is. It entails, a loving relationship entails, talk about putting a ring on it, married folks you know, it entails a giving of myself to another, an obedience of myself to this thing that we call marriage. I can't just do what I want to do as a married man. I'm committed to another. There's a mutual submission and obedience as we observe one another. That's what makes it work. That's what it is to put a ring on it. So we're going. So we're teaching. Thirdly, we're baptizing. So what the heck is baptizing? 
Uh, we understand teaching and going. We do those things in our culture all the time. What is baptizing? Uh, our word baptize comes from a Greek word baptizo. It occurs over 70 times inside of the Bible. Baptism is very simply, it's a Christian practice of dipping someone, immersing someone in water. Now, in some Christian circles, maybe you've seen they don't dip them or immerse them in water. They sprinkle them. Of course, if you're in a desert somewhere, I think that's uh, absolutely appropriate, but that's not exactly what we see inside of the scripture. Baptism is actually an act of immersion where people go underwater and come out of water. As a cross-reference, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, that's the language that's used with regard to baptism. It says, coming up out of the water, Mark 1, 10. The word baptizo itself is a word that means immersion. It means going under. Uh, and so, so we go under the waters, and there's something that is beautiful about the symbolism of this that I want to talk about today. So the commission of Jesus, this is where it goes from. Where, where does this baptism thing, well, we go back to Jesus and we go, okay, Jesus told us we're supposed to do this. Very basically, the etymology, baptizo, means to immerse. So you immerse yourself in water. It symbolizes, as I've already said, something like putting a ring on it, commitment, loyalty, fidelity in a relationship. That's what it symbolizes. Let's look a little bit further. The second point that I have for you. The first is commission. We've seen that. The second is context. Let's look a little bit further at the context of baptism around the time of Jesus and what's going on. Would you move from the Gospel of Matthew into the Gospel of John? I want to take you into the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I want you to see something about baptism, namely that baptism, like I shared about Easter, it didn't fall out of the sky. There's a context that happens with it. And going back to the context of Easter and creation and the fall as humanity rebels against God and going back to God's promise that he was going to fix the mess that we made and going back to the great historic patriarch Abram, God gives a covenant to Abram and he tells him, hey, I'm going to fix the world and I'm going to do it through you. Abram was undesiring and undeserving. There wasn't anything that Abram did to, to merit this position that he was given by God. It was an act of grace that God came to him and gave him this promise. God's promise, that covenant that he made with Abram, entailed a blessing of the nations, the, the renewal of things. In the Great Commission, you see that blessing of the nations, the top ethne, all people groups, of God restoring and bringing people to himself. So the commission is a foretaste of this blessing. I want you to understand that as we're talking about context. Now, the last great prophet of Israel is a man named John the Baptizer. Of course, Jesus is also the last great prophet of Israel. But John the Baptizer is why I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of John in the first chapter. And I want you to draw your eyes at verse 25 and see something there. John is known as the Baptizer because he's running around immersing people inside of water. Verse 25, the people come to John and they ask him, Dude, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, I want you to see this verse because it shows you in terms of historical, cultural context, baptism was a thing by the time of Jesus, the time of John. Uh, they're not like, what are you doing, man, dipping people in water? That's crazy. We've never seen anything like that. They're not asking what is baptism. They're asking why are you baptizing? What is the context of this? For Jewish people, they have water rituals. That was a part of their culture. So they had baptism. They didn't call it baptism because baptizo is a Greek word. In Hebrew, they call it mikvah. The plural of mikvah is mikvahot. So they have a practice of mikvahot, of ceremonial washing inside of water in Jewish scripture. If you have a printed out uh, outline uh, that's available on our website, you'll see that this point about context, I have listed in parentheses 
various references from the ancient Hebrew scriptures of where water is used as an external symbol for cleansing. As you move into the New Testament and you meet the prophet John, the last prophet of Israel, and, and Jesus, you see them using this ritual for the people. Now, in Jewish culture, this ritual was a, was a part of a symbol of repentance. To repent is to turn from something. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, this word metanoeo is used, and metanoeo means to turn from something. You're turning from something bad to something good, namely to someone, uh, God, who is good. In, in Jewish culture, metanoeo was understood by this term teshuvah, and teshuvah also means turning, but the turning of teshuvah uh, brings back the imagery of the ancient people of Israel who, who turned to the holy land of promise with the patriarch Abram who was given the promised land to his descendants. Teshuvah is a turning not just abstract from something bad to something good, but a turning back to the land. Understand that Jewish people were given this land by uh, the creator God who is uh, the ruler of the earth and has the prerogative to give things out and he gave them this space of real estate and the people had squandered that through rebellion against him as humans rebel against god it comes those things disease death dysfunction disharmony and also comes with it exile and so they go out of the land they're brought back into the land and if you know the story of the hebrew bible you know the story of the exodus how they're rescued out of a particular land in Egypt, how they're brought to the land of promise, how in the land of promise they're booted out of the land and enter into exile, and then they come back to the land, and they come back to the land in repentance, metanoeo, teshuvah. A part of that symbolism entailed Israel going through waters. In the Exodus, they go through the waters as they are rescued from God, delivered from God. In the entry into the land, they go through the Jordan River, and the Jordan River is, is, is said to actually split open as they enter into the land of promise. So mikvaot for Jewish culture is a part of their history, their historical narrative. We have certain historical narratives uh, for us as North Americans. We have stories about, you know, uh, Boston Tea Parties and revolutions and so on and so forth that are part of our national story. This is a part of their national story. Turning to God, turning from bad, turning to good turning back to the land. So John comes and he stands in the Jordan River, which is the place of Teshuvah, where they came back into the land. And we read John, draw your eyes to the text, verse 26. We read John here. And they want to know why he's baptizing. And he said, I baptize you in water, but one stands, one stands, one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. And I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now John here in the text, he speaks of Jesus the Messiah as the Lamb of God. This is language of sacrifice. It is also language of last days. We read in eschatological texts of the Lamb of God that comes and overthrows the kingdom of darkness. 
We read in soteriological texts about sacrifice and lambs giving their, their lives in the place of sinners. Forgiveness is the prerogative of the offended party, as I said. And in the case of humanity and God, forgiveness has come not in animal flesh, but in human flesh. John describes him in human terms and divine terms. Divinely, he existed before John. He is of a higher rank than John. He bears the title Son of God, which later we see in John chapter 5 was understood to be a label making one's self equal to God himself. He is one with the Father, so he is equal to God. He is one with the Spirit, so he is equal to God. As I shared in the beginning, there is one God who eternally dwells in three persons. The person of the Spirit is said to rest upon him as a sign. The Spirit comes with the symbol of the dove, the text tells us. The dove was a symbol of a new age. It takes us back to Noah. When the dove ascends on the new age that God broke forth in Noah, so too the Christ has come to bring about a new age, the preparation for the kingdom of God. John is calling the people in the Jordan to a reenactment, a teshuvah. We've been brought back to the land, but we have sins we must confess nationally. And all nations of the world have sins they must confess. I mean, regularly we're reminded of our sordid past in this nation. It just keeps coming up. It just keeps coming up. And as a nation, you get called to a place where you have to cry out to God, Oh Lord, forgive us. John is standing in those rivers calling on the people to national repentance. They go, what are you doing? He goes, there's a new day that is dawning. A new one has come. The one that we were waiting for has come. And now that one stepped into the river Jordan, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. Now, if baptism is supposed to be a symbol of repentance, what the heck is Jesus doing inside of the water? Isn't he, Pastor Matt, didn't you say he's without sin, he's holy, he obeyed the law, he's a perfect sacrifice for us? Then why on earth is he inside of the waters if that's supposed to be teshuvah, metanoeo, uh, washing of your sin? Isn't he supposed to be free from sin? Yes, yes. He is free from sin. He enters into the waters as a part of that historical reenactment. He comes typologically as Israel to fulfill Israel, to do what Israel did not do, to do what Adam did not do, to, to, to be able to be that sacrifice in our place. He gets into the waters not because he is dirty. He gets into the waters because we are dirty and those are our waters that we must come into. And so in fidelity to us, he comes and he gets into our dirty water and takes our filth upon himself. There's nine people in my house. I got a lot of kids, not multiple wives. Uh, I got seven kids, my wife and I. And on a Sunday morning, you know, it's, it's who gets to the bathroom first, right? And I would never to my kids, you know, pour a bath and go, all right, you go, all right, you next, you know. I mean, by the time the seventh one got in the water, it'd be pretty disgusting, right? You don't do that. It's disgusting. Why would you do that to someone? It's exactly what the Lord has done. He has stepped into our filthy bath water to take our dirt upon himself. So that as the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Move from John chapter 1 now over to Galatians chapter 3 quickly. I need you to see something in the text of Scripture. I warned you at the beginning that we're all about the Bible. We want you to see things inside of the Bible. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is unpacking the work of Christ in light of the revelation of Torah. 
how the Holy Spirit operates in this age and the work of Christ in distinction with the law of Moses. And here in Galatians chapter 3, draw your eyes at verse 25, we read that faith has come so that we are no longer under a tutor. The law, the history of Israel that was pointing us to the one who would come. Verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for you were all baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. What I want you to see here is this language of baptism tied to the work of Christ. He got down and dirty for us. He bore our, our, our filth in those waters for us symbolically. He dies on the cross, not as a symbol, but he dies on the cross literally taking our sin and our punishment upon himself. The language of Galatians 3 is beautiful. It says that we are clothed in Christ. That is the next point on my outline. We've talked about the commission, where this baptism stuff comes from, the context, looking at ancient uh, Israel, Teshuvah, Metanoeo, and so that John and what they're doing, that was a part of their culture. And now we look at clothing. Baptism is explained in Scripture as a kind of clothing, being clothed with Christ. As he's talking about baptism, uh, Paul talks about clothing. It could be a mixing of metaphors here. In Roman culture, uh, they would use clothing as a part of different rituals. It might not be a mixing of metaphors. It could just be very simply that when people get baptized, they might throw their tunic off, jump in, get baptized, and then throw their tunic back on. Or they go in with their tunic, and so they emerge from the waters uh, uh, with their clothes clean. And so it's a beautiful picture of that. Bottom line, he uses this clothing language as he's talking about baptism to give us a, a picture of what God has done for us. Baptism is an external symbol of an inward reality. The same way this ring is just an external symbol on my finger of, a, of an inward reality that I'm married to Erica Jones. So this is just a symbol of that. I can't take it off and say, I'm single, you know, because this doesn't, this doesn't make me married. It's just a symbol of it. So too, these waters don't make anyone saved. They don't save you. Jesus is the one who saves you. And that saving is, is, is used here in the text of Galatians with this image of clothing, a clothing that has been placed upon you. We think back to how God clothed our father and our mother with the sacrifice of an animal. And he promised them that one would come who would remedy all of this. That new sacrifice has come. Baptism clothes us. It's a picture of our clothing in Christ. We, we've been wrapped up in Jesus. All of his goodness we've been wrapped up in. Just like clothing. Armani, Gucci, Abercrombie, and Fitch, uh, Polo, whatever, whatever labels you're into or whatever. This is the ultimate label that God clothes us in. When I was a, a young kid, my parents got divorced. We switched schools from one school to another school as a result of them trying to co-parent and really kind of single parent. Uh, the new school that I went to, uh, unlike the other school that I was at, had uniforms. The nice thing about uniforms is everybody's dressed the same. Ain't no thing. Can't make fun of anyone. We all got blue shirts on. But when you switch schools and you go to a new cool school where everyone has fresh gear, and on your first day of school, you get made fun of. It, it's kind of lame as a kid. And I, re I recall that happening quite vividly uh, in the fourth grade when I switched schools. 
with my pro wings on, and everyone's like, aha, and they make fun of you for the way you dress. Clothing carries status with it in all cultures. The way that you clothe yourself says something about you. Paul uses that intercultural phenomenon and says, we have been clothed with Christ. We have a uniform, a common uniform. These waters unify us, and it, it pictures what he has done. These, these new school clothes that he has given to us. What has he given to us? Salvation. He saved us. He, to use the biblical word, converted us. He changed us from what we were, children of Adam, and made us children of the Father. That's what conversion is. The final point on the outline that I have for you, the final text I want to take you to is Romans chapter 6. So if you're in Galatians 3, you've got to move to the left and find your way into Romans chapter 6. The final point that I have for you is commitment. Baptism is a picture of commitment. After all, it is a command of Christ to be baptized. So in commitment to him, you obey. He himself entered the waters for his people. Who are we to not enter them ourselves? He has called us to obey in this regard. Early Christians referred to baptism as sacramentum, which was a Latin word for a Roman soldier's oath of absolute devotion to his general. Baptism is a picture of commitment, that we are, we are committed to him, that we are committed to his will for our life, that we are committed to walking after him and no longer walking after the things of this world. Draw your eyes at Romans chapter 6. Find your way at verse 3. Do you not know that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too would walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be done away with him, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. What a beautiful picture of baptism. It's a picture of freedom, of being rescued from slavery. An underground railroad where, where God gives us life. And this life comes through his death. So in baptism, a part of the picture of immersion is not just full washing, he's washed us, but it's also a picture of burial, of being put in the ground six feet under, of being buried, or in ancient Jewish culture, being entombed. You're placed, you're placed under, and it's a picture of death. And as you come up out of the water, baptizo, as you come up out of the water, mikvah, it's a picture of resurrection and new life. Just as the Lord Jesus couldn't be contained by that tomb. The tomb was, was on Good Friday, filled with his body, but come Sunday, his body was no longer there, for he was risen. He was risen from the dead. So baptism pictures that, a going under and a coming out. A going under, being washed. A going under, you're dead. And a coming out, you've been brought to new life. It's burial. It's a funeral. The story is told that when the gospel was first preached on the island of Barbados, uh, there were people who were responding to the message of Jesus as Christians were doing the part of going. And they went to Barbados, and they brought the message of Jesus to Barbados. And history records that, that people responded, and people wanted to be baptized when they heard about this, and the meaning of it, and the context, and the commission, and all the things I'm telling you. They, they set a baptismal date, and, 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 and the people of Barbados who had responded to the gospel showed up for the baptismal service. 
And when they got there, they were dressed in their nightgowns. Women were in their nightgowns, and men were in striped pajamas. And the missionaries were like, okay, maybe something got lost in translation. <laughs> They're in their pajamas. Like, why are you guys in your pajamas? You guys should go just change your regular clothes. And they said, no, no. And the missionaries were like, okay, but like, what, what's going on here? Before the baptismal service, the missionaries actually uh, uh, were, were told by one of the responders that in our culture, when we bury the dead, we bury them in their pajamas. And you said that baptism was a picture of death, so we believe when a person dies, he just goes to sleep, so we put them in their pajamas, and that's what you said it's about, so we've come to picture the death that we have in Christ. And, you know, the missionaries are like, oh, yeah, you guys got it, like... See, these rituals that we have from the ancient world come from different cultures, and so they take on different shape as they go around, the form and the function. But the, but the meaning of it is there. Jesus died for you. This is what we picture. Jesus cleansed you. He cleansed you by his blood. The waters picture this. And this is a history that, that, that goes back to the people of Israel. It goes back to them entering the land, entering the land through the water, and God fulfilling his promises. So we think about the Jordan, we think about Exodus, we think about exile, we think about God bringing them back, we think about Jesus rising from the dead, all these beautiful symbols in it. The great Passover, when God rescued his people. Hopefully, you, when you came in, you grabbed a communion cup. When Jesus gathered his disciples before his, his death on the cross, before he gave the commission, in the commission he gave them baptism, which is a symbol, an external symbol of an inward reality. That ordinance of baptism was prefaced by another ordinance, the ordinance of communion. He took the symbols of Israel, his reenactment, his recapitulation of the people of Israel. He sits them down in the Passover and he says, yeah, you know in Passover we have that unleavened bread. And he takes the bread and he's breaking it with them. And he says, this bread... This bread is my body. This is for a new covenant that has come. A new promise that is really the fulfillment of an old promise that God would restore. That God would clothe his people one day. Temporarily he clothed our father and our mother when paradise was lost. But now there is a permanent clothing that has come in him. A clothing by his flesh. And so this also is a metaphor we don't think we're eating Jesus. <laughs> this is a metaphor. It's a picture. It's what he did for us. The eternal, immortal God took on flesh, God the Son. So let's eat and let's remember our Passover. In the Passover, they eat unleavened bread. Leaven is a symbol of sin inside of Scripture. Eating this bread reminds us of our, of our, of our calling of our calling to walk away from sin. Baptism, washing sin. These, these are dancing together, baptism and communion. It's so special that we get to have both ordinances today. In the same way that he took of the bread, he took of the cup, the wine of the Passover meal, and he said, this is a symbol, a picture of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He poured his blood out for us. 
Our blood could not serve as a sacrifice. It is tainted. Any more than a person with a disease can give their blood, can donate their blood to the Red Cross, they won't take it. It's contaminated. His blood is pure. His blood is not only pure, but his blood purifies. The Apostle Paul said when we take communion, we're not just reflecting back on what Jesus did for us, but we're also proclaiming his coming. When we will partake in a great Passover meal of the Lamb and we will celebrate the one who has come. Oswald Smith famously said that we talk of the second coming, but half of the world has never heard of his first coming. And here we're reminded of our commission. Brothers and sisters, do not take for granted the meaning of the symbols that have been given to us. Baptizing and teaching. Oh, we're enjoying those. I'm teaching you. Oh, we're watching baptism. Oh, we're having communion. But let us remember that participle of going. The mission that has been given to us to go is a mission that has been secured, as I shared in the beginning, by his authority. He has promised his authority of the heavens and the earth to give us this commission. And, and, and along with this authority, he has promised his personal presence. We started in Matthew 28. He ends the commission by saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. His presence manifests by the Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete who has come for his people to empower us. The triune God, brothers and sisters, carries us on this mission. Those who will be baptized here today are baptized here today because God reached out and cleansed them. God chose to do that. God was merciful to them in that. And the message that he has given us to carry, this thing that we call the gospel, when we go and we share that, there will be people who reject it, people who say we're crazy, people who, you know, don't respond to it. But that's not our job. We haven't been called to save anyone. We've been called to tell them of the one who saves, which is, which is what I must do even now in talking about these things, because there could be some among us who have yet to come to him, who have yet to respond with teshuvah, metanoeo, and cry out to God and say, I'm sorry for my sin. Not just that I'm sorry, but oh God, forgive me. And, 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 and not just any old God, pie in the sky God, but you God, the one I've been told about today, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. I cry out to you, oh God, be merciful to me. Wash me. I need you. I need you. That you would do that now. You would be set free. And church, we're going to join now in a song. We're going to have Landon lead us in a song as we worship him. That'll give us a couple of moments for those who are uh, going to be baptized today to come forward for us to get the top off of this thing. And as we sing, and as you witness and you watch this, be reminded, it's a, it's a symbol, just like the ring, just like putting a ring on it. It's a symbol of a special relationship. A relationship that was formed by a proposal than none other than God himself, who wasn't taking no for an answer. God didn't stick his neck out and say, will you marry me? And was nervous about whether or not we would say yes. Because while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Spirit breathed life into us to draw us to Him. Repentance is a gift. Salvation is a gift. So let's sing praises to the one who saves, and let's witness our brothers and sisters here today as they enter into the waters and picture for us the beauty of what the Lord has done. Let's pray, we'll sing, we'll see some people get dunked. Uh, Father, we thank you for the image of dunking the image of washing, historical images of your people Israel in the wilderness being rescued, entering a land of promise through water. And now we come to this 
small body of water and we're reminded of the big, great, and mighty work that you have done, O Father, through your Son, risen from the dead. We pray now as you hear the song, O God, before your throne room in the heavens, that we would join with the angels. You are worthy to be praised in this place. We come now responding to your good news at work among us. Receive these songs of worship and this ordinance of baptism as we carry the commission that was entrusted to your people so long ago, and we keep it going, anticipating your return. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. In your name we ask this. Amen. Uh, keeping with the uh, put a ring on it uh, metaphor of today's message, we are going to begin our baptisms uh, with, with some I do's. Uh, just acknowledging that, uh, that those who are being baptized today understand what it is that they're doing. Say, we just listened to an hour sermon. We know what we're doing. I know, but we're just making sure. So as they stand in front of us, uh, they will make a profession of faith by responding to a series of questions with a simple I do. And so my question uh, for those of you who are here today to be baptized, uh, we'll, do it, we'll do it in a sweep. Uh, I'll give you five questions and we'll just respond by saying I do. Do you confess that you know you are a child of God through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior from sin? Do you confess that your intention is to follow Christ in dying to selfish desires and living a life of obedience that pleases him? Do you renounce uh, the kingdom of darkness and all spiritual forces of wickedness and false religion that rebel against God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you away from the love of God? Do you promise to make use of the spiritual resources that Christ has provided through the Bible and his church to be a faithful follower of Christ from this day onward? Finally, I want to join your profession of faith with the historic uh, confession of our faith that comes from the Apostles' Creed in the first century. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, was buried, and rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins? the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Okay, we're going to begin with our sister Bianca. She's going to she's going to put the ring on it first. So, I'm going to have you why don't you enter this side and we'll go down that way. If you if you need the ladder, if not We use we use the heater. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. Not too bad. It's, it's uh, warmer than Jordan, I'll tell you that much. Is Paul, Paul Anderson here? When we went to Israel, he got in, uh, we did a baptism in the Jordan. That thing was freezing. She's like, I'm freezing now. Hurry up, Pastor Matt. All right. <laughs> Bianca, based on your uh, testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, your public proclamation to uh, his church here, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next up, we have Robbie. And Jenna, Jenna, you can come and stand up here, a husband and wife combo. Come on this end. There's not room for both of you at the same time, so we'll go one by one. Start with the head of the household. 
Based on your uh, profession of faith in Christ, why don't you come down so we don't... Your, your profession of faith in Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stand here with us, your wife? In the scriptures, uh, we read in particular in the book of Acts of uh, whole families responding to the gospel, husbands and wives in their homes. And so it's always beautiful when we have a husband and wife uh, picturing uh, for us the saving grace of God in Christ. Sister, based on your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next up, we have Philip. Give it up for Philip. There you go. Yeah, Philip. This is Philip's father, John. We have had a, a conversation for some time about this day. <laughs> We're so excited for you, Philip. Philip comes to church. He loves the Lord. We've been talking about baptism. We're so excited. Philip, based on your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There you go. Where's your friend? Yay! Jordan. You had some family who came today. Shout outs to the family. We welcome your family here. We're so excited for you. Based on your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, in response to his gospel, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Sebastian. Sebastian. Ryan, come. Ryan's been uh, deeply involved in Sebastian's life. Ryan runs our, our youth group. Love to have Ryan baptize Sebastian. It's the cold air that bites. But even worse, sin that bites. And the Savior who saves. Based on your testimony, Sebastian, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, if, if you uh, are new here, or uh, maybe this is your first time hearing about Jesus, we'd encourage you to, to come back. Uh, we talk about him all the time. We never get tired of it. We'll keep telling you about him and what he has done and keep calling uh, for people to respond in, in, in such a way as we've seen today. It's a beautiful picture to be washed. If you've ever carried around guilt and shame, uh, you, you know the weight of that. And to know that there's one who washes you, who cleanses you, who's done that work for you, who offers himself to set you free from sin, to set you free from punishment, to give you life. 
Uh, we, we call you to come to him. He is good. He's mighty to save. You'll never regret giving your life to him. Let's close our service with a, with a word of prayer. And, uh, and I invite you, if you haven't been baptized, all you have to do is let us know. Just say, I want to be baptized. You know, we'll, we'll set it up. We'll fill it up again. We'll do it again. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for the waters of baptism. We thank you for the songs of worship that we have sung. Lord, we thank you that we're not just singing karaoke out here, uh, Lord, but we are singing praises to your throne room in heaven. We are, we are singing things that are, are true, things that have been passed on to us from ages long ago. You are the God of history. You are the God of eternity. And in you we find our security, our hope, life. And so, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we would be filled with a sense of wonder for the washing that you have done for us. I pray a blessing over each and every head here this day, Lord, that you would bless uh, folks who have come here today. We do pray that you would bring folks back and keep them safe in the meantime. I pray for marriages represented here, Lord, that you would strengthen them, strengthen husbands and wives, strengthen the relationship of parents and children. Lord, give them energy. We pray for uh, the unmarried among us, the single, Lord, that you would be with them. We pray for the widowed among us, that you would comfort them and encourage them. Lord, we, we, we pray for those who are going through hard times, that your hand of healing would be upon them, that you would carry the weight for them this week. We pray as we discuss this day our commission and the nations of the world, the, the ethnic groups, the peoples that have yet to hear of you. And Lord, we pray for our, our beloved missionaries that we just sent out into the world they're going to learn a new language and to give their lives loving a people that they formerly did not know. And there we are reminded, Lord, that you came for us. Lord Jesus, you were the missionary that crossed not a mere culture, but, but heaven to earth for us. We thank you that you are our great missionary. You are our great savior. You are our great shepherd who carries us on as your sheep in this final age of the earth. Come rescue us. Come renew the creation. Come restore the dysfunction. Come heal the disease. Come raise the dead. Come bring in the new earth, Lord, for our earth is torn apart. We pray for your hand to be upon our nation and the nations of the world where there is rumor of war and conflict. We pray for, for healing where there is brokenness, where there is injustice, Lord. We pray for your, your hand and your common grace. Above all, Lord, we pray for those we love that are far from you. Draw them to yourself, we pray. Use us, grant us boldness and favor, we pray, that we could share your love and your compassion with those around us. Have your way with us this week. In the name of Jesus, amen. Blessings upon you. Have a great week.